Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Friends, our reading today comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew. You know, all four of the Gospels have a signature story. Each Gospel takes its interpretive key from this signature scene. For Matthew, the signature is the Sermon on the Mount, contained in chapters 5 through 7. Matthew is a brilliant writer. Chapters 1 through 4 are a kind of beginner's guide to Jesus, where he came from, who he is, how he fulfills prophecy, and how he relates righteousness. This opening section, in a way, anticipates the next section in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. Finally, in chapters 8 through 28, we see echoes of the Sermon on the Mount's teachings when we read through this amazing gospel, the second, third, fourth, or maybe even 14,000th time. We will continue all those times to pick up on these echoes. In fact, when we read the rest of the whole New Testament in light of Matthew 5 through 7, we will hear echoes continually in Paul's letters, in the epistle of James, even in Revelation. In our reading this morning, the curtain rises and we find a large crowd sitting on a hill, looking up and listening to the opening words of Jesus as he begins to teach and preach. Let us turn now and take a seat and look up and listen and see what this this captivating young rabbi has to say. Matthew 25. Matthew 5, uh, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said of those in ancient times, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and sister and then, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were on the way to court with him, or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, truly I tell you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. We've sang this song together once before, but we're going to sing it uh, each week during the during uh, the season of Lent before our sermon to prepare our hearts. So let's sing together. Will we ever rise? Will we ever rise above? 
the fear can we learn to see the need can we share humanity i can see another day come broken people we can be made whole we can be made whole we can be made whole as we lay down our weapons open up our hearts love is breaking us love remaking us we begin a new sermon series uh, today for the season of lent called 40 days of forgiveness over these next several weeks we'll be looking at various aspects of what it means to forgive what it means to be forgiven how to forgive, uh, how to live in those spaces, those places in which we find it difficult to forgive and maybe even unable to forgive. Um, the story today we heard read is that Jesus is preaching what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in this teaching today, he says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother or sister and then come and offer your gift at the altar. It's a strange teaching of Jesus. If while you're at church, you're about to make an offering and you suddenly remember that you have a problem with someone, then just get up and leave. And I know you're wondering, <laughs> did Jesus just say I don't have to make an offering today? Um, this is why we call for the offering earlier in <laughs> the service. Before you get any ideas of uh, getting out of here, uh, in the first church I served, I was preaching on this very text. I read this scripture, and as I finished the scripture, I looked down and about five rows back was a woman who uh, had a very troubled look on her face. In fact, she seemed very anxious and uptight, a little fidgety as if she was just struck by something. And it wasn't five minutes into my sermon when all at once she just got up and left. She stood up and she turned and went down the center aisle toward the door. When she stopped at the door, she turned and looked at me and gave me this knowing glance, and I knew, I just knew she had someone that she needed to see. Um, Jesus was this extraordinary teacher, maybe one of the most extraordinary teachers of his day. Uh, he was a master communicator. He, he, he taught in various ways with using various devices, you might call them. Uh, depending on his context and his audience, he would he would use a different teaching device. So, for example, sometimes he would teach using what we call aphorisms. An aphorism is like a short, pithy little statement, a one-liner. You've heard them. If a, if a blind man leads another blind man, they will both fall into a ditch. Well, you get the point. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. The harvest is plentiful 
but the laborers are few. These are called aphorisms, and they communicate these general truths in very plain terms. Sometimes Jesus taught using Proverbs. This is a very common form of teaching among the ancient rabbis. And you know some of these quite well. It is better to give than to receive, of course. Love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Do to others as you would have them do to you. These are Proverbs. They're very memorable, repeatable pearls of wisdom, right? And sometimes Jesus taught in a form called, uh, what the rabbis called, from light to heavy. It was called uh, calvacomer. Uh, and it, 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 it shows itself in one of the most uh, memorable teachings in this format, where Jesus says, consider the birds of the air, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet their heavenly Father feeds them. And are you not of more value to the Father than the birds of the air? It's a very effective teaching device uh, from light to heavy, from less to more. You get the point. Most often, Jesus taught in what we call parables. Parables are short stories, and Jesus invited us into this narrative world to imagine ourselves in the story. A father had two sons. One of them uh, took the inheritance and went to Las Vegas and lost it in loose living. And you ask yourself, am I the father? Am I the prodigal? Am I the older brother who never left? You imagine yourself in a story. That's a great teaching device. A man scatters seed. Some of it fell on rocky soil. Some of it fell on the path. Some of it fell on good soil. And we ask ourselves, what kind of soil am I? In the Gospels, it's called parabole in the Greek. Parable. It's a very powerful teaching tool because we humans love stories. We remember them. But sometimes Jesus taught in not parabole, but in the Greek, huperbole, huperbole. You get, you get, you, you can hear it. It's hyperbole. Hyperbole is exaggerated speech to make a point. What did the poet Emily Dickinson say? To the hard of hearing, shout. To the almost blind, draw large and startling figures. That is exaggeration. That's hyperbole to make a point. It's not uncommon for us today to speak in hyperbole. We say, I am so hungry I could eat a horse. It's raining cats and dogs, right? Uh, I love you to the moon and back. Uh, Hyperboles aren't meant to be taken literally. They, They overstate a claim in order to underscore a point. And Jesus often taught in hyperbole. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to to sin, cut it off. But we don't take this literally. If we did, we'd all be walking around with eye patches on, right? (laughs) Jesus said, here's my point. Jesus said, if you're at the altar and you remember that you have a problem with someone, get up and leave and be reconciled first. This is one of those teachings of Jesus in which if we took it literally, it could 
They could turn a church service into a circus. We'd all be walking around asking each other, do you have a problem with me? Do you, have, have I ever offended you? And, and if you ask somebody that long enough, they're going to say, if you keep asking me this, yeah, I got a real problem. But let's be honest, every one of us here today, we come to church painfully aware that there is likely someone in our lives with whom we have a problem or somebody who has a problem with us. Someone with whom we can't see eye to eye. We can all think of someone who perhaps, maybe we don't dislike them or hate them, but because of some past misunderstanding, some disagreement or disagreement over opinion, difference of opinion, we just prefer, we prefer to avoid them altogether. Because the air between us is thick and cloudy, maybe the dust never quite settled, maybe they just get under our skin. And every one of us, knows what it's like to stand in need of forgiveness. Forgiveness for the things that we have done and said to somebody else. Things that we should never have done or said. And every one of us knows what it's like to stand in that position in which we have the power to grant forgiveness for what's been done or said to us. Uh, Why is forgiveness so hard? Well, for starters, it it requires us to transcend our human nature. Humans are are hardwired, not for forgiveness, but for fight or flight. Forgiveness is not a natural human impulse. There's nothing natural about asking for forgiveness. And there's certainly nothing natural about granting it when people ask for it. And when our actions and our words have hurt someone, when uh, we've been hurt deeply by someone, it's in our nature, it's in our nature to, to avoid reconciliation altogether. When that happens, Jesus compared that experience, that, that condition as a, a form of death. He says in our text today, you have heard that it was said, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is even angry with a brother shall be liable to judgment. This condition of unforgiveness, it it leads to a kind of death in our lives. In our passage today, Jesus speaks of this fight or flight instinct in two very distinct terms. He identifies two common responses that we make whenever we encounter conflict with another person. And the first, he says, is to insult them. Our English translation here is a bit misleading. Jesus uses this Aramaic word here. The word is raka, R-A-C-A, raka. And it's an obscure term of abuse. It's not simply just an insult, but it's a way of saying, I'm done with you. Raka. It means literally worthless. And it refers to the physical act of pushing yourself away from the table, standing up and brushing the crumbs off your lap, and turning and walking away. That's a way of saying, this relationship is over. It is hopeless. I no longer want you in my life. You are raka to me. You are worthless to me. It's an act of flight 
running away from our problems. And in doing so, it leaves behind this great rift between us and others that is in our minds intended to be permanent. Raqqa, have you ever experienced the devastating power of Raqqa? She says, I never, ever want anything to do with you again. Or he says, do not call, do not write, do not visit, you are dead to me. Raqqa. Jesus then identifies in his teaching another more hostile response to a broken relationship or conflict. It is the fight instinct. It says, in some form or other, damn you. Literally. In our modern English translation of this text, the phrase here is, you fool. That's the PG version. But in the Greek, it literally means, it literally means, you can go to hell. And it's not only then delivering our judgment on a person, it is then assuming in that case that my judgment is also God's judgment. It's saying not only are you worthless to me, but you're irredeemable to God. Not only is this situation hopeless, but you are hopeless. It's saying, I hope God gives you what you deserve. Whether we choose fight or flight, Jesus says it's equivalent to a kind of death in us, not just the symbolic death of a person or a relationship, but a death that, that happens in us, whether we are the offender or the one who's been offended. And we know this. Whenever we refuse to give up our need for power, whenever we cling to regret for what we've done or what's been done to us, whenever we refuse to see ourselves as anything less than right or justified, whenever we resign ourselves to a situation or a person by saying it's hopeless, something deep within us dies. The the lifeless wreckage of a broken relationship becomes for us an obstacle to a life-giving relationship with God. Wherever there is brokenness in our personal relationships, there is an obstacle in our way to experiencing the grace of God. C.S. Lewis, the, the great theologian and writer of the 20th century, he, he wrote a little book called The Great Divorce. The, the Great Divorce was a book about hell. In it, he paints a picture of what hell looks like, and it's It's sort of haunting because it's so true about how we live our lives today. In his description, hell is this vast gray city. It's a city that's inhabited only at the edges with rows and rows of empty houses in the middle. And all these houses are empty because everyone who once lived in them quarreled with their neighbors. And they moved out to go find other neighbors with whom they quarreled. And they kept moving out until they only all occupied the edges. Hell is, hell is this city that's full of empty houses. And C.S. Lewis said, this is how hell got so big. We just kept pushing ourselves out instead of being reconciled with our neighbors. Whether we choose fight or flight, Jesus 
says we are liable, quote, to the hell of fire. Not because of what God will do to us someday in the next world, but because of what that does to us in this world. And that's why Jesus, in the very first sermon he ever preaches according to Matthew, he tells us straight up, it it will not be so among my followers. The Sermon on the Mount contains some of the most radical revolutionary teaching of Jesus. Because in it, Jesus tells us that we must not only transcend our human nature of fight and flight, but he adds another layer to it and says you also must transcend even the minimum requirements of the Ten Commandments. Jesus says it's not enough to run around and say, look, I'm not a murderer, I must be a good person. He says you can murder somebody with your words. You can kill somebody without ever robbing them of their last breath. So he gives us a new commandment, a higher obligation. And he says here today, if, if you're at the altar and you remember, if you're at the altar and in that moment the light goes on and you see clearly the truth of your life, what, what is it about the altar that stirs up for things, stirs up in us things that maybe we wouldn't otherwise think of in our ordinary lives? We can go about our daily lives and be in a rush and be so busy that we never give thought to all the brokenness that we deal with. And then we come to church and it surfaces. And we become more reflective and more honest about how our lives really are. Jesus understood that the altar is that place where when you're there, the light of God begins to burn so transparently that you you begin to see the truth. Years ago, I got a call, my previous church, I got a call from a man who asked if, if I would meet with him and his wife to do a ceremony in which they could renew their vows. And he said, look, there's been some pain, and I've made some terrible mistakes, and we want to start over. And I didn't ask him any questions except one, oh, where would you like to do it? I mean, I thought maybe we, it was San Diego. Maybe we'd want to do it on the beach. There's a lot of nice little golf course, country clubs. Maybe he'd want to do it in his backyard, surrounded by people and friends. And, but he said, no, we'd like, we'd like to do it in the church, at the altar. We want to get it right this time. And Jesus says, at, at the altar, if, if at the altar you remember. And but. I think perhaps that's because when we're at the altar, when we're in church, we can't not remember. We can't not remember. We stand at the altar and we remember a God who reaches out to us in Christ, even when in our own brokenness we were once far from God. It's impossible to stand at the altar of God and pretend not to know. That something's just not quite right. At the altar, we realize that we're not alone and that our faith is not a private enterprise. That is to say that just as we belong to God, at the altar, we remember that the one with whom we are estranged also belongs to God. At the altar, God says to us, that person that you say is hopeless or worthless is not hopeless or worthless to me. And the judgment that you have made about that person is not my judgment. 
And at the altar of God, we meet a God who has already forgiven us and who's already taken the first step toward us in Christ. This Christ who took all the violence and hatred of the world into himself and held it in for so long that when he finally exhaled, what came out was nothing but pure grace and mercy. If at the altar you remember, go and be reconciled. Whenever I preach on forgiveness, I I hear from people who struggle. They ask the question, but what if I'm not ready? What if the other person's not ready? What if the other person has never, never confessed or apologized for what they've done to me? What if, what if, what if the hurt, the trauma, are there limits? I'm sorry to say that in this passage, Jesus doesn't give us an easy out. But remember, he's teaching in hyperbole. He's drawing large and startling figures to get our attention. And so if that describes you, the difficulty of not quite being in that space to forgive or to be forgiven, give yourself some grace, but also give yourself some valor. Be brave. Be more than your nature allows you to be. If you can't yet forgive or don't know how to ask for forgiveness, then at least refuse for now to run away in flight. Refuse to fight by laying down your arms, your weapons of accusation and bitterness. Remember God's grace for you. Because the teaching really just wants you to look at your life That's what Jesus really wants you to do when he teaches this message. Look at your life and look at all the people that God has given you to love, all the people that God loves. Like God, you can love them, even if they choose not to love you back. You can extend the hand of peace even if they slap it away. You can take one step in grace toward them even if they step back and dust the crumbs off their lap. If you can't win the peace, announce a ceasefire. Jesus says, just whatever you do, don't don't waste time. Get up and leave. Some say, look, no, time heals all wounds. Just give it enough time and things will get better. But Jesus says, don't waste time. In fact, leave in the middle of church if you have to. Three takeaways. Whenever we choose a fight or flight, something very real within us dies. With God, no person is worthless and no situation is hopeless. Be brave enough to become more than your nature wants you to be. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.